Winterson classic. It's the story or stories set both in the 20th and 19th centuries of Silver, who becomes an apprentice at the lighthouse at Cape Wrath on the northern coast of Scotland. It's a hypnotic and fascinating read. The format for the morning will be that Jeanette Winterson will read some extracts from Lighthouse Keeping, after which I'll start the ball rolling by asking some questions, and there'll be plenty of time for you to ask your own questions and raise whatever points of view you may have. Afterwards, Jeanette Winterson will be very happy to sign copies of her work in the next door tent. As I expect you know, she is a remarkable reader of her own work, and it's with great anticipation that we await you now, Jeanette Winterson. Thank you very much for coming here this morning. It's wonderful to be back in Edinburgh and, of course, to be back in the tent, back in the gospel tent. And before we begin, I do have a question. Hands up anybody who's never read a Jeanette Winterson novel. Oh, excellent. Excellent. (laughs) Because when you leave here, you're all going to be converted. (laughs) Nobody's leaving this tent until they've found the way. So I shall expect to see all of those hands in the signing queue when we've finished. Tell me a story, Pew, says Silver. What kind of a story, child? One with a happy ending. There's no such thing, child, in all the world. What, as a happy ending? as an ending. Lighthouse Keeping is a book of beginnings. Fresh starts, new arrivals, old maps that lead to unexpected destinations. There are two births in the first chapter. Silver, orphaned early in tragic circumstances, finds herself apprenticed to lighthouse keeping at the Cape Roth Lighthouse with the mysterious and shape-shifting Mr. Pugh, biblically old, blind from birth, but gifted with second sight. And Pugh teaches Silver how to man the lighthouse, and he also teaches her to tell the stories for which the lighthouse keepers are famous. Surrounded by water, alone, together, the lighthouse becomes a memory point. And the lights themselves, flashing out over the water every four seconds, become the stories which act as markers, guides, comfort, and warning. And one of the stories that Pew tells Silver is the story of Babel Dark, the 19th century clergyman of their hometown of Salts, a man whose inner life becomes so fragmented that his outer life eventually collapses. Friend of Darwin, friend of Robert Louis Stevenson, Dark is a strange and tortured figure. 
who haunts the Cape Wrath headlands. And Silver finds that her own destiny is strangely twinned with darks. And so that separated by time, but bound by imagination, they must move together to find a conclusion, which in Silver's case, we hope, is some kind of redemption, if not a happy ending. But I'm going to start at the beginning, which I think is probably the right place for a book of beginnings. My mother called me Silver. I was born part precious metal, part pirate. I have no father. There's nothing unusual about that. Even children who do have fathers are often surprised to see them. My own father came out of the sea and went back that way. He was crew on a fishing boat that harbored with us one night when the waves were crashing like dark glass and his splintered hull shored him for long enough to drop anchor inside my mother. Shoals of babies vied for life. I won! I lived in a house cut steep into the bank. The chairs had to be nailed to the floor and we were never allowed to eat spaghetti. We ate food that stuck to the plate, shepherd's pie, goulash, risotto, scrambled egg. We tried peas once, <laughs> such a disaster. And sometimes we still find those peas dusty and green in the corners of the room. Some people are raised on a hill, others in the valley. Most of us are brought up on the flat. I came at life at an angle, and that's how I've lived ever since. At night, my mother tucked me into a hammock slung crosswise against the slope. In the gentle sway of the night, I dreamed of a place where I wouldn't be fighting gravity with my own body weight. My mother and I had to rope ourselves together like a pair of climbers just to achieve our own front door. One slip and we'd be on the railway line with the rabbits. You're not an outgoing type, she said to me. Though this may have had much to do with the fact that going out was such a struggle. While other children were bid farewell with a casual, have you remembered your gloves? I got, did you do up all the buckles on your safety harness? Why didn't we move house? Well, my mother was a single parent and she had conceived out of wedlock. There had been no lock on her door the night my father came to call. And so she was sent up the hill away from the town with the curious result that she looked down on it. Salts my hometown, a sea-flung, rock-bitten, sand-edged shell of a town. Oh, and a lighthouse. They say you can tell something of a person's life by observing their body. This is certainly true of my dog. My dog has back legs shorter than his front legs on account of always digging in at one end and always scrambling up at the other. On ground level, he walks with a kind of bounce, 
that adds to his cheerfulness. He doesn't know that other dogs' legs are the same length all the way around. If he thinks at all, he thinks that every dog is like him. And so he suffers none of the morbid introspection of the human race, which notes every curve from the norm with fear or punishment. You're not like other children, said my mother. And if you can't survive in this world, you better make a world of your own. But the eccentricity she described as mine were really hers. She was the one who hated going out. She was the one who couldn't live in the world she'd been given. She longed for me to be free. And she did everything she could to make sure it never happened. We were strapped together, like it or not. We were climbing partners. And then she fell. This is what happened. The wind was strong enough to blow the fins off a fish. It was Shrove Tuesday, and we'd been out to buy flour and eggs to make pancakes. I was excited that day because tossing pancakes was something you could do really well in our house. The steep slope under the oven turned the ritual of loosening and tossing into a kind of jazz. My mother danced while she cooked because she said it helped her to keep her balance. Up she went, carrying the shopping and pulling me behind her like an afterthought. And then some new thought must have clouded her mind because she suddenly stopped and half turned and in that moment the wind blew like a shriek and her own shriek was lost as she slipped. In a minute she dropped past me and I was hanging onto one of our spiny shrubs. I could feel its roots slowly lifting like a grave opening and I kicked the toes of my shoes into the sandy bank but the ground wouldn't give. We were both going to fall falling away from the cliff face to a blacked out world. I couldn't hang on any longer. My fingers were bleeding. And then, as I closed my eyes, ready to drop and drop, all the weight behind me seemed to lift. I looked down. My mother had gone. The rope was idling against the rock. I pulled it over me towards my arm, shouting, Mummy! Mummy! The rope came faster and faster, burning the top of my wrist as it coiled next to me. And then the double buckle came, and then the harness. She had undone the harness to save me. Ten years before, I had pitched through space to find the channel of her body and come to Earth. And now she had pitched through her own space, and I couldn't follow her. She was gone. Salt has its own customs. When it was discovered that my mother was dead and I was alone, there was talk of what to do with me. I had no relatives and no father, no money left me, and nothing to call my own but a sideways house and a skew-legged dog. It was agreed by vote that the school teacher, Miss Pinch, would take charge of matters. Miss Pinch was used to dealing with children. On my first dismal day by myself, Miss Pinch went with me to collect my things from the house. I wanted to take some of my mother's things too, but Miss Pinch thought it unwise. Though she did not say why it was unwise, or why being wise would make anything better. 
And then she locked the door behind us and dropped the key into her coffin-shaped handbag. It will be returned to you when you are 21, said Miss Pinch. She always spoke like an insurance policy. Where am I going to live until then? I shall make inquiries, said Miss Pinch. You may spend tonight with me at Railings Row. Railings Row was a terrace of houses set back from the road. They reared up, black, bricked, and salt-stained, their paint peeling, their brass green. They'd once been the houses of prosperous tradesmen, but it was a long time since anybody had prospered in salts. And now all of the houses were boarded up. Miss Pinch's house was boarded up too, because she said she didn't want to attract burglars. She dragged open the rain-soaked marine ply that was hinged over the front door, and she undid the triple locks that secured the main door. And then she led us into a gloomy hallway and bolted and barred the door behind her. We went into her kitchen, and without asking me if I wanted to eat, she put a plate of pickled herrings in front of me while she fried herself an egg. We ate in complete silence. Sleep here, she said, when the meal was done. And she placed two kitchen chairs end to end with a cushion on one of them. And then she got an eiderdown out of the cupboard. One of those eiderdowns that have more feathers on the outside than on the inside. And one of those eiderdowns that were only ever stuffed with one duck. This one had the whole duck in there, I think judging from the lumps. <laughs> so I lay down under the duck feathers and duck feet and duck bill and the glassy duck eyes and snoot duck tail and waited for daylight. We are lucky, even the worst of us, because daylight comes. The only thing for it was to advertise. Miss Pinch wrote all of my details on a big piece of paper and put it up on the parish notice board. I was free to any caring owner whose good credentials would be carefully vetted by the parish council. I went to read the notice. It was raining, there was nobody about. And there was nothing on the notice about my dog. So I wrote a description of my own and pinned it underneath. One dog, brown and white, rough-coated terrier, Front legs, eight inches long, back legs, six inches long, cannot be separated. And then I worried in case a person might mistake it was the dog's legs that could not be separated <laughs> instead of him and me. You can't force that dog on anyone, said Miss Pinch, her long body folded like an umbrella. He's my dog, yes, but who's he you? That we don't know. And not everybody likes dogs. Miss Pinch was a direct descendant of the Reverend Babel dog. There were two dogs. The one who lived here at Salts, that was the Reverend, and the one who would rather be dead than live here, and that was his father. Reverend Dark was the most famous person ever to come out of Salts. In 1859, a hundred years before I was born, Charles Darwin published his Origin of Species, 
And he came to Salt to visit Dark in the lighthouse that Dark's father had built in 1828. Dark's father, Josiah, was a small, active, peppery man who never visited Salt in his life, and on the day he did, he vowed never to return. He preferred their coffee houses and conversation at easy, wealthy Bristol. But Salt was the place that would provide the food and the fuel for the lighthouse keeper and his family at Cape Wrath. And Salt would provide the labor to build it. So with much complaining and more reluctance, old Josiah Dark bedded for a week at the only inn, the Razorbill. It was an uncomfortable place. The wind screeched at the windows, and a hammock was half the price of a bed, but a bed was twice the price of a good night's sleep. The food was mountain mutton that tasted like fencing, or hen, tough as a carpet, that came flying in all a squawk behind the cook who smartly broke its neck. Every morning, old Josiah drank his beer, for they had no coffee in this wild place, and then he wrapped himself tight as a secret and went off onto the headland at Cape Roth. One day, as he stood still as a stone pillar, an immense black gull landed on his shoulders, its feet gripping his wool coat, and the man dared not move, and he thought wildly that the bird would carry him off like the legend of the eagle and child. But suddenly, the bird spread its huge wings and flew straight out over the sea, its feet pointed behind it. And when the man got to the inn, he was very quiet at his dinner, so much so that the wife of the establishment began to question him. And he told her about the bird. And she said to him, that bird is an omen. You must build your lighthouse here as other men would build a church. And so, finally, the lighthouse was completed in 1828, the same year as Josiah Dark's wife gave birth to their first child. Well, to tell you the truth, it was the same day. To my son! said Josiah Dark as the light was lit for the first time. And at that moment, Mrs. Dark, down in Bristol, felt her waters break and out rushed a blue boy with eyes black as a gull. And they called him Babel, after the first tower that ever was. Though some said it was a strange name for a child. And the pews have been lighthouse keepers at Cape Roth since the day of that birth. And the job has passed down generation to generation, though the present Mr. Pugh has the look of being there forever. On the morning that nobody seemed to want me, and I didn't seem to want myself, I was feeling dejected, and I walked the dog slowly along the headland up to the lighthouse at Cape Roth. And Pew was staring out of the rain-battered glass, a silent, taciturn clamp of a man. And then, some days later, as Miss Pinch and I were eating breakfast at Railings Row, me, toast without butter, Miss Pinch, kippers and tea, Miss Pinch told me to wash and dress and be ready with all of my things. Am I going home? Of course not, you have no home. But I'm not staying here, am I? 
No. My house is not suitable for children. You had to respect Miss Pinch. She never lied. <laughs> then, what's going to happen to me? Mr. Pugh has put in a proposal. He will apprentice you to lighthouse keeping. What will I have to do? I have no idea. If I don't like it, can I come back? No. Well, can I take the dog? Yes. She hated saying yes. She was one of those people for whom yes is an admission of guilt or failure. No was power. A few hours later, I was standing on the wind-blown jetty, waiting for Pew to collect me in his patched and tarred mackerel boat. I'd never been inside the lighthouse, and I'd only seen Pew when he stumped up the path to collect supplies. The town didn't have much to do with the lighthouse anymore. Salts had become a hollow town, its life scraped out. It had its rituals and its customs, but nothing left in it was alive. Charles Darwin had called it Fossil Town, but for different reasons. And fossil it was, salted and preserved by the sea that had destroyed it, too. Pew came near the boat. His shapeless hat was pulled over his face. His mouth was a slot of teeth. His hands were bare and purple. Nothing else could be seen of him. He was the rough shape of human. Dog Jim growled. Pew grabbed him by the scruff and threw him into the boat, and then he motioned for me to throw in my bag and follow, and the little outboard motor bounced us over the green waves, and behind me, smaller and smaller, was my tipped-up house that had flung us out, my mother and I, perhaps because we were never wanted there. I couldn't go back. There was only forward, northwards, into the sea, to the lighthouse. Pew and I climbed slowly up the spiral stairs to our quarters beneath the light. Nothing about the lighthouse had changed since the day it was built. There were candle holders in every room and Bibles put there by Josiah Dark. And I was given a tiny room with a tiny window and a bed the size of a drawer. As I was not much longer than my socks, this didn't matter. Dog Jim would have to sleep where he could. I was cold and tired and my neck ached I wanted to sleep and sleep and never wake up I had lost the few things that I knew and what was here belonged to somebody else perhaps that would have been all right if what was inside me was my own but there was no place to anchor there were two Atlantics one outside the lighthouse and one inside me. But the one inside me had no string of guiding lights. said before you actually say in this novel um, a beginning a middle and an end is the proper way to tell a story but I have difficulty 
with that method. Yes. As I said before, um, your novels involve interwoven, interleaving um, stories, but they're also remarkably well-ordered, structured the novels. I take it you don't write sequentially, you don't begin at the beginning, work your way through. How did this um, novel... I don't write sequentially, no. I'm sorry, I won't sit down. It looks like I've got piles, but I haven't, actually. It's just that it's the, uh, the um, pack for the microphone. <laughs> so forgive me if I seem to be perching awkwardly, because I am. Um, no, I, I don't, don't write sequentially. What I do is I, um, I start with an idea, which is uh, uh, something that won't go away, something that, that, that demands concentration and I imagination. And I work with it until I've worked it to death, and I can't go any further with it. And then I begin something else. And I write these sections, and I just put them in piles on the floor. I don't number the pages at this stage. Um, and every time something comes through that I need to work with, that's what I do. I knew that I was going to write the story of Silver because I, the first line of the book came to me very clearly, which is often the case with me. Um, it was the same with the power book, um, which begins, um, to avoid discovery, I stay on the run. To discover things for myself, I stay on the run. So as soon as you get something which is rhythmically right and, and, and works with your own breath and your own body, then you can start to expand it. At least that's what I do. Um, the danger with this method is that uh, if your cleaning lady comes in when you're three quarters of the way through <laughs> and decides to rearrange all your papers, which has happened to me more than once, so it may have been an inspired move on her part, but about two thirds of the way through, I, I, got, I sat down to work one morning and I just started on the to work on the laptop and I wrote um, he was walking his dog along the cliff path and I thought who was what dog and it, it, indeed it was the story of Babel Dark coming through and he didn't appear until about two thirds of the book and then I realised I would have to go right the way back and put him in and that the whole thing was taking on a different dimension and the piece in there which is about Babel Dark discovering the fossil cave at Salts um, was written exactly as you will read it, without any changes or hesitations, um, right the way through one morning. But it's one of those pivotal things that you cannot predict that will then change the whole shape of what you're doing. And that's the thing that you've got to be prepared to work with because there are acts of will and there are acts of imagination and they're not the same thing. And you have to always be open to the fact that your own book may suddenly veer off along the cliff edge and probably take you tumbling down with it. And you simply have to follow it in good faith till the end and trust that you'll be able to bring the whole thing back together. Anyway, only when the thing is done do I start to order it, um, rework it excessively, obsessively, and then, of course, number the pages, which I can assure you is a great relief to the publisher. <laughs> However, this book had to be done in a special edition for Australia in February this year because I was going there on a tour. And uh, on Boxing Day, I hadn't numbered the pages. It was tight. <laughs> and my poor publisher had to come out on Boxing Day. There was no Christmas holiday for her. And said, Jeanette, will you number the pages so that we can print the book on January 5th, which we have to do? So I did. <laughs> can I take you up on act of will, act of imagination? There's many stories in this book, the story of Babel Dark, the story oh. of Silver, um, 
Pugh, and of course we recognize the references to Robert Louis Stevenson. And Robert, the Stevenson family actually built the lighthouse at Cape Wrath, didn't they? They did. Stevenson family built nearly all of the lighthouses. They were the Borgias of lighthouse keeping. If there was a lighthouse, the Stevensons were involved, except for the one who wasn't, the only one who escaped, which was Robert Louis. And of course he went on to write the books that we all know so well, Treasure Island, Kidnap, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde. Um, it was because of my fascination with the split personality of Babel Dark that I began to realize how extremely handily this could all come together and that I could use the lighthouse, I could use Stevenson, I could use the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which I do, um, and pretend that Babel Dark had been a model for that story. And there's a, there's a, a scene where he meets Stevenson and talks about his own split life and all this begins to come out. Of course, he wasn't the model, so please, if there are any credulous students here, do not write this up as part of your thesis. <laughs> but you put in different stories, or, or the book opens out into different stories, different myths, legends. One of them is Tristan and Azoldi. Um, and if you can remember it, I mean, was that an act of will, act of imagination? How did Tristan and Azoldi fit into this book? Yes, all, all of my books are full of stories because I love to tell stories. But I'm simply not interested in the, 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 the monolith of um, the 19th century narrative, which was, of course, completely broken by modernism. And then, sadly, um, restored to life as a kind of Frankenstein's monster lately. Um, what I prefer is a more energetic way of telling stories and one which more closely parallels our own mental processes. We do not think in straight lines. We do not think as in beginnings, middles, and ends. Uh, our thought processes are just as spaces, curved. We are curved. We are, we are not motorways. We are mazes. That's how our mental processes work. And to, I think to impose an order on that is entirely artificial. What you have to do is find the order to find the pattern which actually exists there. And I think that's one of the things that art can do so well, rather than imposing an order on our lives to make them feel less chaotic, uh, which we all need. It can reveal an order which is inherent and an order which is much more dynamic, like the universe is dynamic. What I'm trying to do is work with things that are actually there, rather than things which are handy inventions uh, so that we feel safer. Um, so by, the, by telling these stories, by them switching continually one into the other, moving through it in a way which is coherent but is not fixed in an obvious way, um, I think we can, with the language, engage in an energetic dynamic or the dialogue, you and I, reader and writer. The thing is not static. It's always in process. And with Tristan and Isolde, I've been, th I've been down to Glyndebourne. It was last year, actually. And I've been to see Tristan. It's an opera that I love. And it was a particularly good production. Um, because it was modern, you know, there were no spears and skirts knitted out of sacks and all the rest of it, which you so often get with Wagner. Um, it was clean, it was modern, it allowed the music to come through. And when I'd seen it, I was so moved, I went back to my hotel where I was staying for the night and I wrote the, um, what is really a cover version of the Tristan and Isolde story. And I knew that it would come in somewhere, but I didn't know where. And that's what I mean about trusting the process, the acts of imagination, that um, you must believe that you can do this and that you are open to other influences rather than simply trying to force it through. It's completely different to journalism. And if you're given a brief, then you must write the piece 
um, usually in three hours time, 1200 words, here's the argument, then you entirely use your conscious mind, you use all your professional skills and you do the job. If you do that when you're writing fiction, all you'll get at best is high class journalism. Um, you won't get anything that even begins to approach art or what we want it to be. Um, you'll get a kind of creative writing school, highly polished piece of work. You won't get the thing which comes from a place which is much more dangerous and much more mysterious and which we hope will connect through. Those are the places that as a writer you have to risk. And the line between success and failure in those places is very fine um, and one often falls into the other. It's not, it's not a safe business, it can't be. Yeah, because I was thinking there that a lot of your fiction, a lot of your characters are single or orphaned. A lot of your central characters are on a quest um, for something, trying to make connections between things. And often the quest, it seems to me, and I'm not trying to be reductive, I mean, it's a quest for love. Mm. You're a very romantic writer, it seems I to am. me. <laughs> I am. Mean, you're a romantic person. Right? I am. I mean, you're a very romantic writer. There's the quest for love. There is passion in your writing in all its senses, isn't there? I mean, do you recognize that? I do, but I hope I'm not alone. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you're not alone otherwise. I've wasted the last 20 years. Um, what is it about the, the quest for love that is so important? I suppose it's because it, what Dante called it the love that moves the sun and the other stars, um, the, the force of the universe, the pivot, the thing around which all else must orbit. This isn't simply romantic love in its reductive sense, in its, in its, in its magazine version, and it's especially not in its sentimental disguises, but rather the thing which calls us out the thing which asks us to be better than we are, which forces us out of a kind of self-imposed solipsism into a connection with other people and the rest of the world. It is very difficult for anything to pierce the thick walls of personality. We are, we are locked in to the lives that we make for ourselves, um, to our own self-inventions. And it's very hard to break this. What tends to break it is the sudden recognition that there is another person in the world. We can be surrounded by people and feel entirely alone. And the connection that makes that different is often a love connection, is usually a love connection, is always a love connection. Whether um, it's a person that you fall in love with or whether it's somebody that for whom you feel a deep and abiding love. It changes you. It changes the way you see things. It changes your possibilities in the world. I think there are probably three things which, which save us from the, 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 the vacuumed exile in which we live and one is love and another is art which I think you know I believe in and the third one in all its guises is faith that is faith in something worthwhile outside of yourself you don't have to call it God but you need to have some, some sense that there is, there is an energy or a purpose in the larger universe, which is not simply contained in, in, in the rather small and, and, and reductive sense of self that we carry around with us. And these three elements, these three things, I think, allow us to become fully human. We explore ourselves 
through these dynamics, confrontations with another person that we love, forces, that person who forces us to change, to become reflective, to become generous, to become open to new experiences, um, to go through our fear, because there's nothing more scary than being in love with somebody else. There's nothing more frightening than knowing that you are vulnerable and open to another person who can reach inside you, steal your heart, steal your thoughts, steal your imagination. That place is frightening. And probably a way to confront it and our own fears is through art because that offers a kind of crucible in which all of these things can be played out. It, it becomes literally a safe space for the imagination uh, and our emotions to work together. I believe in the life of the imagination. I believe in an emotional response to our world, not one which is logical, cut down, rational, self-contained, but all of these things require the self to be moving out continually rather than being turned inwards. And it's that process, that quest, which is my journey in my books and has been from the beginning and will continue to be in its many disguises. I stalk life from every angle so that I can know something about it. Should we ask them? Let's bring them in. Please put your hand in the air if you have a question, and one of the staff will come with you for a microphone. There's uh, a lady in a black sweater or cardigan there. Yeah, you, you, Matt, just behind you. Sorry. Yes. Hi. Um, I have two questions. First of all, one. One, okay. one, one quite short, uh, so we can bring everyone all right. in. What do you think is the role of the writer? Because sometimes, uh, it, sometimes it seems that it challenges practicality um, in the world. So do you think you are moral uh, writers or moral guardians? Okay. Or what do I think is the role of the writer and do I think that writers are moral guardians? I think that writers are, are guardians. I think that the thing that they guard um, is a sense that there is a world outside of our own that we've just been talking about. I think that writers, all artists, um, are continually in dialogue with the space that is beyond the self. The, th the space that we find in storytelling, the space that we find in imagination is the space that is revealed through art. And you cannot simply find it by wanting it or thinking about it. It, it demands active exploration. And that's the work that writers do. And they make a bridge, um, a bridge between the work on the page, between you reading it. It's never a passive act. It's always something which, which is dynamic. And all of us need to have these stories. We need to be told stories, not simply about our own lives, but also about lives that have gone before, uh, the myths, the legends, the creations of the universe. Uh, these are the things that activate us. Most of our life is spent in a kind of 24-hour emergency zone where we can only ever think about what we're going to have for tea, how we're possibly going to get ready for work the next morning. All, all these crises which now fill our lives. And I think what, what art can do is to take your hand off the panic button. It gives you time to steady your breath, um, to even know what your breath is, to find your own rhythm again, because it demands that you spend time with it. So when you read a book, or you go to the theater, or you listen to music, or you hear somebody telling a story, um, you are withdrawing your energies from the endless demands of the outside world, which is just this hungry, clamoring monster that wants all of you and would suck you in. And I says, no time for something else. And it, at that point, your imagination floats free. At that point, you find things in yourself which would otherwise be utterly lost and muffled. You know, people say art can't change your life. 
Maybe not, but what it can do is awaken you to authentic desire, to how you really feel, to who you really are. And then the responsibility to act on that desire is yours, is mine. But always, art is the prompt. Art is going in. It's, it's the wake-up call. It's the necessary intervention um, in a world which would otherwise utterly wall us round with trivia. We have never lived in a noisier, more trivial world than the world that we live in now, a place where all, all space for imagination, for faith, for contemplation, for meditation, um, even to admire the view, all of that is seen rather as a kind of guilty luxury because we're so busy and we haven't got time for any of it. And it's ridiculous. You know, the moment when you go on holiday and you think, what was I doing for the last 50 weeks of the year? Partly because you come back to some sense of self. Well, art can do that for you uh, every day, on a regular basis, whatever it is, by taking the time, by demanding the time from the outside world. So if, there, if, if writers, artists of all kinds have a purpose, our purpose is to remind you to be that necessary intervention, not to instruct, not to teach, not to be superior, not to be better than, but to make the space where all of us can be. That's my job. There's another lady. You, um, you mentioned that you felt uh, the 19th century monolithic novels returned. I wonder if you could expand on that, just give us some examples and, and tell, tell us why you feel that it has come back. The monolithic 19th century novel. I mean, listen, I love 19th century novels. We should all read them because um, they're fabulous, but what we shouldn't do is write them anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Things move on. They have to. Um, one of the demands of art is, is that we make it new, that we find new ways of telling the stories so that we can reach new audiences. Every generation uh, shares certain preoccupations but also approaches life differently because life changes. We change and we have to respond to those situations. Uh, and I believe that what art does, art in the present, is both to respond to our new situations, but also to make a connection to the past so that we don't live anymore on islands of separation. You know, many people do feel that they're bobbing about in an uncontrollable sea on a little raft all of their own, and they're not connected to anything, certainly not connected to the past. I don't believe in past, present, and future uh, as a series of separate entities. I believe in them as a connection, and I think one of the things that art does is make that connection because it does live in a perpetual present. You know, science must continually update itself, and when it does so, uh, discoveries that have gone before that seem so relevant, so important, become redundant, and we realize how provisional um, those ex-cathedral pronouncements really were. I mean, science now is beginning to recognize it's provisional. Um, art, however, seems to do something rather different. It seems to connect us in a way which is not provisional and which is not about being updated in the obvious sense. It's about living in a place which is always present. And when you go and see new work, it can at first be very frightening, whether it's on the stage or whether it's in a book, because it is unfamiliar. But it's precisely that unfamiliarity which jolts us away, which forces us to think about the thing that we're really seeing, forces us to experience it. When we listen to, to stories being recounted in different ways, as they always must be, it's because new elements have to be emphasized, new things have to be brought forward. And that allows us both to live in the present and to be connected to what has gone before. 
I really believe that you have to push the form forward, and that if you're not ambitious for the form itself, um, in writing or in theatre, then you are leaving something behind which is crucial. It's very easy to be always doing what has already been done. It's not easy to try and just move the thing, even if it's only half an inch, to find a different way of pushing. Now, I'm a modernist at heart because I was excited by those experiments because, as we've talked about earlier, I felt that they really did respond to all of the things that were happening in the early 20th century, the discoveries of science, that the world was not static, was not objective, was not Newtonian, but was... Um, a dance that we didn't fully understand and that us as observers were actually affecting what we observed. All of that was fabulous. And you look at the writings of Joyce, of Wolfe, of Eliot, of Stein, all those moments. Look at the paintings of Picasso, listen to the music, Schoenberg. It's not about anything which is static and held. It's about something which is in process, something which is moving. That's why it was such an important movement and one which isn't redundant. So... Now I feel that the job of writers, the job of artists everywhere, is just to keep pushing forward. And when people complain and say, I can't bear this, I just want something which is, which is safe and well-known, they're really asking that art be a safety blanket, a kind of consolation. Now, it can be a consolation, but only through the challenges that it offers, because there is no safety without risk. And as I did say a long time ago in The Passion, what you risk reveals what you value. There's a, a lady in a red sweater. Hi there. I'd just like to ask, last night we um, saw Rona Cameron and she was talking about the struggle and battles that she had when she was a teenager, sorry, of wanting, you know, fighting between wanting to be a boy and wanting to be a girl. Many of your um, main characters in, in, in your books seem to have a gender but don't have a particular sexuality and I was just wondering whether that was influenced through your passion for art or whether it was through the struggles and battles that you personally had to, to come through, if that um, makes any sense. Well I do play with gender in my books because it interests me um, because I don't feel that we are particularly locked into our gender at birth. I feel that gender is more of a toolkit it's something that you're given, and then you can do what you like with it. Um, you don't have to stay there. You can move around a little bit. You know, sometimes I think that both heterosexuality and homosexuality are kind of psychosis, <laughs> and the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think that we find in ourselves always elements of the other, and it, it, it's, it's a given that in art those elements of the other come forward. Anybody who works creatively... Um, and his male finds the female in themselves and the female finds the male in herself. It cannot be otherwise. Um, and all of the stories, you know, look at any of those marvellous metamorphosis stories um, or the Greek legends, it's all about change, how one thing becomes another. You know, in Ted Hughes' version, it begins, now I'm ready to tell how bodies are changed into other bodies. Um, that's exciting. It's not just that it's sexy. It's telling a truth about ourselves, that we are not locked in. And I think all of the things we've been talking about today is how we get past this illusion of being locked in to what we are, into the freedom of the self, the freedom of the imagination, which is possible. Um, and that is the force, the push of art. And naturally, when I'm, I'm using characters in my work... I Um, 
by the way, when, uh, when um, Stage Beauty opens, which I think it probably just has here, you must go and see it because it's a marvellous film. And it does play with these elements. You know, there, there can be a huge element of play in what we do. Um, it, it's serious, but um, it's also exhilarating. And none of us need to be caught in any sense of what we are. All of us have that possibility of freedom. Who you love, how you love, is entirely up to you. Um, nothing is described at birth. Very little, anyway. Another question. Yes, there's a, an arm waving up the back. Uh, you mentioned um, talking. Uh, you mentioned finding new ways of telling stories. Uh, I was curious if you intentionally change your process of writing to sometimes surprise even yourself with the results. I think if the results weren't surprising, probably I should burn it. Um, we talked about the writing process earlier. I think that gave you an idea. Um, and we talked about acts of will and acts of imagination. Um, you have to be prepared for those surprises and you have to allow them to happen. There is no choice. You know, just as in the rehearsal space, things come out of that which are completely unexpected for actors and directors alike. There is no difference um, in the writing process. Um, you work with the language. And English is, is a fabulous language. It's an old language. It's a very rich, varied, expressive flexible language, full of creative possibility. And it, even working with one word and then thinking to yourself that you might choose another word uh, allows you to change what you are doing. And finding the right word is so important. And that's why I spend a lot of time working with the words themselves, so that I can get an exactness um, and an equivalent of language, which becomes an emotional response. She's not going to buy my book, is she? <laughs> <laughs> you can't win them all. Um, so what, what, what we're looking for here is always to be sensitive both to the work in process and the language itself which is letting that work happen. Whenever you try and force something, you're in a panic. It's a sure sign. Um, if you try and use only your conscious mind, you can never reach those creative places which make all the difference and which make the connection, I believe. Can we have a final question? A final question? There's a lady right in front there. If you can make it quite quick, because we're running out of time. You talked earlier about how you write your novels, which are you know, fairly complex. How would you say the process of writing that was different to writing your children's storybook, which was The King of Capri? Oh, yes, The King of Capri. Now, you should buy that, definitely. <laughs> um, I love doing The King of Capri. It's a picture book for children. I have a godchild. And uh, I took her on holiday to Capri when she was tiny. She's eight now, but I think she was three or four at the time. And we pegged all our kit on the line, as you do at the end of a day swimming. And in the night, a, a wind blew up, and it blew everything off the line down into the neighbor's garden, socks, knickers, underwear. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I just uh, ma made the story a little larger, a little more absurd, just pushed it to its logical conclusion, and began to tell a story about a selfish and greedy king, the king of Capri, uh, who one night found that all his possessions had been blown across to the Bay of Naples in a great tempest and landed in the backyard of the poorest woman in Naples, a washerwoman called Mrs. Jewell. So that now the greedy king had nothing and Mrs. Jewell had everything. So she becomes queen of Naples and he's left all alone until one day when there's nothing left to eat, he swallows his pride and rows across. Um, various things take place. Naturally enough, there's an animal helper because in the stories you always have to have an animal helper. 
and there's a cat called Wash, and uh, there's a, there, there is the, the mysterious elemental agency of the wind, because you always need that too in the fairy stories. So I just put these things together and made her something, and then we got pictures and balloons, we published it. So it's called The King of Capri, and it's, it really gave me enormous pleasure. Um, because grown-ups uh, who write, such as myself, don't normally get pictures in their books. <laughs> so if you've got any kids, I think you, re you really will like it very much. And it has a happy ending, you'll be glad to know. No equivocations, <laughs> just a happy ending. But the complexity that we work with cannot be put aside. Um, in the end, you hope you find something which, which has a purity of line and movement, which hides that complexity, but the complexity must be there underneath. It must be rigorous, it must be rich. There must be so much more going on, it's like the iceberg, underneath the text, which you can find or not find according um, to your desire. But I must put it there, which means I must find it. Um, it's the buried treasure, and it has to be dug up, and it has to be re-offered again and again and again. So I suppose that's my job, isn't it? It's seeing where the rainbow ends and going and digging and digging till I'm half dead, bringing this thing up into the light um, and making it into a new currency that all of us can use. I hope you'll buy the book. <laughs> You can clap again in a minute. Um, unfortunately, we've run out of time. I would like to thank Shauna for signing today. I would like to thank you for coming. I would like to thank you for coming and to say that Jeanette Winston will be very, very happy to sign copies of her books in the next tent there. If you can give us one second to get out and get round there, it'll be wonderful. And Jeanette, it's been terrific. Keep writing, keep working. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.